Auckland's move down from alert level four to alert level three has set off a Category 5 hurricane of media takes, of course, and most of them are about whether this means the end of our vaunted elimination strategy. So we had the crack team of epidemiologists at the News Talk ZB opinion pages on the case, Heather Duplessy-Allen. She said this lockdown isn't working and elimination, probably impossible. Barry Soper, he said the government's elimination strategy has been scrapped, but they won't admit it. Kate Hawksby said... The Alert Level 3 decision was purely political, obviously not for health reasons. Uh, and over at Stuff, we had the political editor, Luke Melpass, saying that if cases haven't dropped to zero in two weeks of Level 3, then the government's elimination strategy will have all but failed and will no longer be viable. And I'm not sure why that necessarily is. It's stated as an almost assumed fact, but it's, it's unsure. I'm, I'm unsure why that sort of semi-arbitrary deadline I, I wouldn't turn to any of those people for epidemiological analysis, even if I can't say the word very well. But I'm, neither yeah. am I surprised that they're saying things like that after Ashley Bloomfeld was saying today, well, maybe we won't get back to zero cases in the community. No, and everyone has an opinion, and in some ways uh, you're right. I think what it is that, I, that, I, that really strikes me about these opinion pieces is their sheer confidence, <laughs> because maybe they're right. Maybe we'll see cases in two weeks' time, and then we'll say, oh, well, elimination wasn't possible, whatever. I just, as a journalist with a communications degree, I wouldn't be confident <laughs> having, <laughs> making a call on that uh, with absolutely no training and little idea on this topic. I mean, I, as you say, you don't, you're not going to turn to journalists uh, for the nuances of whether we can stamp out the embers of a Delta outbreak under Level 3. We're not going to turn to us necessarily to pass exactly whether Ashley Bloomfield's experts' health advice is right. I mean, half of us probably failed biology in the sixth form, uh, I know that I have forgotten how to do long multiplication, let alone COVID modeling. <laughs> so it's just it's just the sheer confidence of saying elimination is over as someone that has no training in this area. I mean, you can opine on different things. Of course you can. You can opine on political strategy. But in, in a specialized area with like this, I wouldn't be confident making a decisive okay. call like elimination is over. Well, Hayden, are there any reporters confidence? who've been talking about this in the last few days who you think, well... That's what I'd go to, to get a better sense of what's going on. I think that the people that I've been impressed with have been the people that have, you know, deferred uh, to sources that are slightly more trained and slightly more knowledgeable than themselves. So thank God, as always for Mark Delda of Newsroom, I think he's, I mean, this is my personal opinion, I think he's been our best reporter on probably the climate and the COVID-19 crises, uh, just general news reporter over the last 18 months, and he somehow churns out seemingly 14,000 words a day. He wrote something for Newsroom, he surveyed the Michael Bakers, the Sean Hendys, and the Michael Planks of the world, and their consensus seemed to be that this alert level move is a calculated risk and it's too early to make confident projections either way on whether elimination can still work. So tell that to our political opinion writers. Jamie Morden at the Herald, he surveyed some experts and they got similar answers to him. Uh, Keith Lynch at Stuff, another great one, uh, an explainer that was well-researched and informative on what elimination actually means, whether it's sustainable long-term. They talk to people that have actual knowledge in the subject area and they don't make confident pronouncements pronouncements and i think that's pretty that's pretty telling right we have these experts and they're uh, pretty much unanimous only in their caution and you know what's that saying brian uh the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity 
thought maybe it's saying we don't, none of us really know exactly what's going on. Absolutely. Is if you are going to write a column, maybe just at least couch it in a few more provisos uh, than we do. Uh, and if we're going to listen to someone, then maybe, if not just to epidemiologists, then at least the sorts of sources that have relevant expertise in the topic. Uh, I mean, these are we're talking about government decisions that have really profound effects on people's lives and policies that have profound effects, obviously. And it hasn't always been easy to get a clear idea of what's actually going on with all the buffeting winds of hot air coming from all directions from some parts of the media. Now, the Herald is launching a vaccination campaign. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Something good. Um, I think NZME has launched the 90% project, which is what it sounds like. It's a series aimed at getting New Zealand to 90% vaccination by Christmas. And I noticed that um, one of the people who's going to be facing the face of this campaign is Kerry McIver from News Talk ZB. So there you go. Um, sometimes yeah. News Talk ZB can be a force for positive change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some people would say that News Talk ZB is our Fox News, but uh, it's probably a little bit more nuanced than that. You have the Simon Barnett's in the afternoons, and you know, you got the Marcus uh, Lush Marcus at night. Lushes. Yeah, exactly. So I mean. Well, the whole strategy of this campaign seems to be just bringing all of the might of the NZME stable to bear in support of vaccination and encouraging all of their audiences to get their jabs. So Kerry McIver, as you mentioned, she wrote a column for News Talk in the Herald urging those who are faffing about to roll up their sleeves for the sake of lockdown Aucklanders and staff in the health system. Now, I'm not sure that's the best pitch, Brian. I mean, there's a little bit more sympathy out there for Aucklanders at the moment, but I'm still not sure that we are the most sympathetic figures in the country. I think maybe if I was going for a pitch, I would say children under 12 who can't get vaccinated, something like that, something that actually um, really actually gets people on board. That's just my advice for the future of this project. There's an embedded graphic in the Herald that shows our progress towards that 90% goal, and actually one other Herald columnist supporting the project, Matthew Hooten, who's now written a series of reasonably sensible things about COVID after spending much of 2020 downplaying the virus, saying it was really an, only an issue for old people and talking up Sweden's high death model. So now well, he must sometimes read analysis as well as other people's opinions. Then you might have, you might remember him from uh, sort of departing the media briefly to support Todd Muller's national party coup. And then obviously yeah. that didn't work out. Now he's back yeah. uh, this week's column. He's uh, actually talking up, how deadly COVID can be, saying that the unvaccinated have a 13% chance of being hospitalised and nearly a 3% chance of dying or ending up in the ICU in this oh. current outbreak. Is there anybody in NZME who's who's not behind this vaccination campaign? I'm not going to say there's anyone that's not behind it. I haven't found any open dissent, but uh, there is at least one major NZME star who is a bit sceptical about the campaign's aims. So uh, here's Mike Hosking talking to his producer, Glenn Hart, on News Talk ZB. Uh, do we get to 80%? Oh, probably. I mean, we're a sort of a compliant little country and, you know, how hard can it be to vaccinate four and a half million people? But, you know, the top countries in the world, you're talking places like Malta and Chile and stuff, they're barely into the 80s. Singapore, barely into the 80s. And that's as good as it gets. The, the the 90 that people like Little started dropping and Bloomfield started dropping seems... I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but... Well, but, the frustrating thing about this is we could be number one in the world. Mm, but we like, don't... Like that, isn't that a good enough reason to do it? No, just, it's just like, little old New Zealand's number one again. We don't want to be.
Right. So that's Mike Hosking oh. talking to Glenn Hart. <laughs> Are we going to get through a midweek media watch dream? without Mike Hosking getting a sound no, grab? No, I know, Ken, I know. <laughs> I'm not sure they would have loved that the biggest star there pouring cold water on the fanciful dream advocated by their you know company wide project. He's, he's a free thinking man. He's a free thinking man. You know he can't be held down by uh, Michael Boggs or any of these company directors. But I mean, he does have a point in that he's talking about a wall of resistance, so called, where countries meet where they get to high vaccination rates and. Look, maybe he's incorrect about the level of resistance we'll meet. The research from the Ministry of Health shows that the potential vaccine uptake among the 12-plus population at the moment is probably around 85.5%, and only 7% of people are actually opposed to the vaccine rollout. Uh, but he's correct that there are there is resistance out there, and I think the reason why is partly down to another media company that refuses to see itself as a media company. Oh, I know what you're going to talk about. <laughs> Facebook. It's Facebook. Facebook, of course. So you'll never believe this, but there's been some negative news around about Facebook recently. Uh, and the Wall Street Journal has been running a series called The Facebook Files, which is based on a collection of leaked documents from the social media giant. And it's had a lot of <laughs> pretty important stories coming out as part of that. But its latest investigation reveals that basically anti-vaccine activists have been able to run rampant uh, on the site, even as it was denying spreading anti-vax misinformation to people. Uh, so uh, it, it's a pretty um, detailed. The, the, it shows that the site was aware of how toxic it was becoming, even as it was publicly denying that fact. Was this happening beyond the United States? Were Facebook pages that are of origin in this part of the world also affected by yeah. this? It's everywhere. And I, the one thing that I'd like to highlight is that this is partly because of an algorithm change. Do you remember in 2017, Facebook said, we're a bit toxic. We're going to do something to change that. We're going to fix our algorithm. We're going to prioritize user interactions over professionally generated content. And uh, this was meant to make it more meaningful and it just friends talking to each other. But <laughs> instead, what they found is that people insulting each other and saying idiotic stuff that got people debating that made for a pretty highly engaging user interaction. And so it ended up incentivizing even more of these anti-vax and QAnon and all this sort of stuff, as Charlie Walzer writes on Substack. At the end of the day, they found out that uh, two people screaming at each other and accusing the other of being part of a pedophilic cult uh, was actually a meaningful social interaction, so-called. So it's everywhere. It's in New Zealand as well. Uh, that Ministry of Health data that I pointed to earlier – that showed that 50% uh, of the people they surveyed had seen what they thought to be COVID misinformation and 70% of all that misinformation that they'd seen, they'd seen it on social media. Of course, the biggest one of those, Facebook. My heart sank a bit when I saw that NBR, the National Business Review, was hiring more opinion writers because I'd rather the NBR did kept doing what I think it does rather well, which is doing investigative journalism on business. Even if they, I mean, they and, might be perfectly good personalities. Duncan Garner, good for, good on him. Rachel Smalley, Bridget Morton, they, but just more opinion, right? Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because you know who actually agreed with you at some point? News, um, <laughs> it was actually the NBR's owner, Todd Scott. And back in 2018, he talked to Colin Peacock, my my good boss, and he was he'd, he'd been loudly denouncing frivolous content such as satire and cartoons, and imploring his staff to focus on business news you can use. And he was upset with this entertainment focus in the mainstream media, and he wanted to 
establish a point of difference at the NBA. So it's pretty interesting now that he's uh, got on board Duncan Garner, Rachel Smalley, and there's another column from um, Bridget Morton that is billed as unashamedly right-leaning column, and that's partly a counterpoint to her fellow columnist, Dita Deboni, who didn't seem to be writing explicitly from the left and didn't really seem to need a counterpoint, but anyway, it's happening. Uh, the new lineup doesn't exactly mesh seamlessly with the <laughs> mission statement put forward by Todd Scott back in 2018, so obviously he's pivoted a little bit. Maybe he's decided that a known name or two wouldn't hurt the NBR's subscriber numbers. Okay, Hayden, in less than a minute, uh, a shout-out for something else, if you've got anything to shout-out oh, about. I've absolutely loved RNZ's Is This Justice series, so check that out if you can. I know that that might be just me uh, <laughs> talking up my own station, but it's revealed a whole bunch of stuff about the justice system. Pākehā, three times as likely as Māori to get name suppression. 90% of High Court and Court of Appeal judges are Pākehā. And of course, this is all relevant because Māori and Pacifica incarceration rates are so high and so much disproportionately higher than Pākehā incarceration rates. And I just really like that this is looking into systemic issues that we don't necessarily always do that doesn't have a strong news hook necessarily and these are the cogs that are turning in the background of an unequal society and often as journalists we're barking at these passing cars there's a drama one day then another the next and uh if we look at the problems with the courts it's through the lens of a specific case and that's important and i get that but this is a series that's doing something different taking a bird's eye view really looking at the macro rather than the miniature hayden thanks so much for joining us cheers hayden